I've had a couple of people say, don't take any questions. Depends on what people want, but since people ask for that, I'm not going to take any questions unless someone is really like... Maybe I shouldn't say that. Uh, uh, okay, so let's let's dive right into it. So um, I think it was okay to do. It's good to just be there and take what conversations there are, but also good to explore what we're hoping to explore. We're going to do the tomorrow. A, a good part of the morning tomorrow, is, which is our last day, will be a little bit more about kind of how this fits into sort of the tradition and what Tibetan Buddhism is about and so on. So we're going to, and then we'll also spend them also like really just engage with questions, although we'll try to focus on the content, questions on content that's like really directly relevant if possible tomorrow, but we're going to reserve a lot of time for conversation and then also larger context, like how does Tibetan Buddhism work and what, what is it like to practice in this tradition and so on. Okay, so... Um, so when we have a perception, so remember, we, at every moment we're having this reflexive awareness. It's presenting. There's the presenting of everything. Whatever is, a, whatever is in consciousness being presented. The stuff that we pay attention to is the stuff that we conceptualize. But the other stuff is also being presented. So, for example, as I said the other day, when I think I see something, let's say I really like blue, or I think this is a particularly beautiful blue circle, what's happening is that this aspect of the awareness, this perceptual awareness, right, that's the non-conceptual perceptual awareness, already conditioned by my, by my various forms of conditioning, including the things I like and dislike, past experience, and so on, when I, when I say, this is beautiful, what's actually happening is, you know, the blue thing is beautiful, or that's beautiful blue, some of this conceptualization is, most of that conceptualization is coming from this side. But I'm actually picking up the feeling of pleasure from the subject side. And then I'm misattributing it to the object. Right? So that's, you know, we talked about the idea of being hangry. So I'm in a state where the judges, you know, it's toward the end of the morning and they give harsher sentences, even though they deny that it's because of, you know, being hungry. The claim here would be that they're picking up irritation on this side that is actually not being caused by this object in any way. The person that they're judging but they misattribute it to the person. So instead of thinking it's about being hungry, they think that person is making me angry. You see that? But even if that person is making them angry, that means there's some previous moment of interaction, and now they're looking at the person and identifying them as you know someone who causes anger. But really what that means is they're picking up the emotion here and then in some fashion attributing the causation to that person or whatever, the object. You see what I'm saying? So a lot of the time what's happening is what people often refer to as unconscious. So 
when we, when we see something's beautiful, <laughs> you can say that we are unconsciously uh, uh, picking up a pleasant sensation and misattributing it to the object. But of course, it's kind of silly to say that's unconscious. So this is one of the problems with the word conscious. There are many people just intuitively, but also in, in, uh, in the psychological sciences, cognitive science, who think that what it means to be conscious is you have to be able to label something. But clearly, we are conscious of a lot more than that. Because if we weren't, if we had to like, if we weren't aware, in some fashion, conscious of our spatial-temporal location, to know that something was over there, we'd have to go, okay, that's, uh, we'd have to do this thing. We'd have to check our location and compare it to the, uh, to the object. Right? If we aren't in some way aware of being, of the here-ness, that's provided by this structure. So part of the problem here of, of the words conscious and awareness and attention is how we define them. So awareness is probably the safest for a very broad version of that's capturing all of this. All right? And we are aware of more than what we are conscious of, more than what we're paying attention to, constantly aware of more than what we're paying attention to, and that's actually essential. We would not be able to function otherwise. So again, body, things like body position, affective states, and so on. The more, so one term for this broader consciousness that gives us access to especially aspects of our subjective experience, the subject side, right? So all of this is within consciousness. But one term for... Uh, a, a, uh, a psychological term or cognitive scientific term is meta-awareness. And there's an article that you can get on my website that's about meta-awareness. And, and cognitive science, that's kind of one of the first articles, I guess, that I wrote with a cognitive scientist and a philosopher that uh, is really saying maybe we should think of meta-awareness as not explicit involving this kind of judgment, but actually implicit meaning we're aware of it without conceptualizing. Okay? And that that's constantly being presented to us. And when we, are, when we have a kind of deficit in that area, like an extreme deficit in that area could, be, could lead to alexithymia, an inability to say what kind of emotional state I'm in. There are other reasons why that would happen, but that could be one of them. So I just, in a sense, have very little access to this, the subject side of my experience. It's not being well presented, right? Or, without going all the way into that, where I can't even say what emotional state I'm in at all, that I am just an ordinary person getting caught up in my emotions, but really focused on something and not realizing that I'm irritated, that I'm angry, or what have you. So the, one of the great benefits of cultivating this kind of awareness is that it gives us a much more capacity to notice how we are doing things, not just what we are doing, but how we are doing them. Not just I'm you know, talking to someone or I'm in a debate, but how am I in that debate? What kind of emotional states am I in? Okay? So this is, again, reflexive awareness. Now here's a case when, let's say, you know, we're out in, uh, we're together at... Uh, this Dharma Center uh, that I've gone to many times in Austria, 
And somebody says, comes running inside and says, come outside, come outside, right? And then we see this, which is from this past summer, just the day before I started teaching there. And it's like, and it's, this is barely, he just slightly changed the contrast, that's all. It really looked like that. Right? And it's actually, a, you may not, you can kind of, it's a little, the projection is not so great that this is a double rainbow. There's a rainbow here uh, and a rainbow here. And it was just like, oh, you know, oh, wow. So we go outside, and then, you know, we're both staring at it, and then we go back inside, and let's say I ask you, wow, how did you feel when you were watching, looking at the rainbow? And you say, I don't know, because I was totally focused on the rainbow, and I have no idea what my feelings were. Is that how it works? And then do you say, oh, I need to go outside again, and then I'll quickly see how I feel. Does anyone feel like they need to do that? Right? But you can be completely absorbed in something. Uh, terror or fear, intense fear is another good example. You can be completely like the bus is running at you and you're like terrified and you jump out of the way and afterward I say to you, were you scared? And you say, oh, I don't know. I wasn't paying attention to my emotions. Do you have to do that? No. Right? Does everyone agree that that's not necessary? So how does that work? Why is it that even though I'm not paying attention to my emotions, I'm completely aware of them when I report what happened. Unless a very significant trauma or terror is happening, and then there can be that dissociation of emotions, which is not good. In terms of sure, but that's not solved by going back and doing it again, because that's just going to keep happening. You're embedded together. Yeah, so how, exactly. So here's a different case. So before we were saying we were looking at an object... And then we're having a perception, and then this is drawn bigger than this because we are object-focused. We're really intense because we want the good stuff, we don't want the bad stuff. So in our ordinary experience, even at the perceptual level, the representation of the object is usually more obvious to us in our experience. But sometimes there will be a case where our subject side, sort of something about our subject side, catches our attention. For example, an intense emotional state. So I'm in the middle of something, and then I sort of notice, oh, I'm getting anxious, or I'm you know, getting too excited, right? And that ability, which of course then gives you the ability to regulate. So how does that happen? It's that this, in this case, this, the representation of the subject is more prominent, and it serves, it then becomes the main cause. Instead of the object being the main cause of the conceptualization, the representation of the subject becomes the main cause of the conceptualization. So what is that, in a sense, what does that look like? It looks like this. Like, I, in this moment, the sense of being, let's say, you know, overexcited is present to me, and then I go, oh, I'm overexcited. And then I have, now I've conceptualized myself. So that's introspection. That's, the, that's also, you could say, awareness of awareness. And that's why awareness of awareness is still dualistic. Because you're looking at, you're turning your own mind, or actually a facet of your own mind, into an object. Okay? So the type of practice we're talking about does not involve turning your own mind into an object. It's not looking in.
subjective became dominant with episodes. Yeah, yeah, basically, that's right, yes. Right, so anytime. And there can, we can also, however, so part of what this is, is like, what's our task? We can set a task uh, that is uh, going to kind of regulate what's going to become dominant to us because it's important relative to the task. It's meaning it's salient. So let's say I set a task of really being uh, aware of how I am doing things. In other words, ramping up my meta-awareness, which could be arguably part of the task of doing mindfulness practice. right? And in that case, then, I will be more likely, perhaps, to notice things on the subject side. Or maybe I set a task of really paying attention to how somebody else is uh, uh, you know, doing in some kind of a context, like you know, maybe someone's having a, a hard time today, and I, I, I set a task to really pay attention. In that case, out of all the background, you know, those elements of the object are going to be relevant to me making a conceptualization. So even at this point, the object selection is already, in a sense, it's not a, it's not a conceptualization because it doesn't involve repeatability. It's like, like, here's this thing again. Here's Charlie Brown again. But it does, it's, it's not like this is just all of our visual field. That's not how it's operating. We're already making choices in a certain way. Or we have a task in mind, and that task causes, sets limits on, on how, we, how that object field is being presented to us. Okay, And that's true for the subject side, too. We can set a task that's going to emphasize how the subject side is going to be presented to us. So part of, I mentioned this because this is, of course, part of how like spiritual practices involving vows, for example, work. You have a vow, you constantly refresh that vow. That some, becomes something that you retain, and that's another meaning of mindfulness. This is the term, especially apramada, right, heedfulness. So you're retaining that in the background, and that's going to be regulating not just how you make conceptualizations, but even how your perceptual apparatus is going to work. Okay? So, so again, this is where the object form, the subject form is, is dominant, but in, in, once again, what enables us to do that, we're not here turning inward to look at the subject form. It's being presented all at once by reflexive awareness. The inward turn, in a, if you want to call it that, occurs at the point of conceptualization. Alrighty. So, just to review, when we have a moment of perceptual awareness, the representation of the object, the phenomenal form of the object, and the phenomenal form of the subject are both presented simultaneously, and not, they're not presented to anyone or for anyone. There's no standpoint from which they are both observed. Okay, so consciousness, the whole... All of consciousness. These are not. These are within consciousness, right? The, this is caused. This is caused by the previous stream of consciousness. This is the whole consciousness is also in a, in a causal stream, but this content has been caused by interaction with some kind of a stimulus. Okay, but it's. Because let's say you did an inward turn earlier, 
then you're not then you are not actually looking at the subject side you're looking at your mind from the standpoint of being a subject so 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 again we have subject object both represented in consciousness once i do this i have now taken certain features of my own consciousness as an object and now that looks just like this and now Let's say I'm looking at my uh, uh, I'm I'm looking at my excitedness. That excitedness is a mental object that I am observing from the standpoint of a subjectivity. Let's say I get m- angry at my excitedness, and then I notice that I'm angry at my excitedness. How does that happen? This presents itself, and then I turn to my now I do a second order turn, and I go, oh, I'm angry at being excited. If I'm looking at my own mind, I am in a subject-object relationship with some aspect of my mind. So that means so that's not non-dual. And when I'm saying I'm looking at my anger, I'm not knowing how that I'm not actually knowing my subject side. Then I'm looking at features of my uh, that are occurring in my awareness. But in a sense. Uh, unless I'm uh, that meta awareness, unless this is clearly enough presented, I may actually miss how I react to my own emotions. But the story I told about reacting to the deer is that an example of that, or is it not? No, it's not. Okay. It's an example. It's an example. It's an example of this. It's where you're you're seeing that oh, the deer. Are you were surprised, right. right? So that's happened because, and so that. Yes, the subject it got highlighted there, just like it often does with any intense emotional experience. But surprise is a good example. Okay, so then we can, of course, the question here really is, what is the cause? Right, that's the real question. What's the cause? If the cause is something out there, so the content is not out there, right? We can take a, uh, uh, you know, we could, we get, if you have an implanted electrodes in certain, certain areas, like someone with epilepsy, there are certain kinds of effects that can, be, uh, that can be induced by stimulating those electrodes. We can use transcranial magnetic stimulation and make you see colors and so on, right? So those are still kind of external causes. They seem like, the, they seem external. And the question is whether... That externality means that that kind there's one kind of stuff which is the stuff causing let's say visual perception, and then there's the other kind of stuff which is what this is. In other words, this is all one kind of stuff, and this is another kind of stuff. The fact that this is the cause of that is not in question. There's there's got to be some cause. It's not random. But the question is whether the cause is the same kind of stuff or a different kind of stuff. So when we ask that question, now we're heading into Yogacara territory. But that a very important aspect of that question is this, or is a sort of way a, a way of not answering that question well, is to say, oh, this is just this. That's incorrect. In other words. There are styles of philosophy which are called uh, um, subjective idealism that collapse collapse everything into the mind. 
ontologically, meaning, meaning the only kind of stuff there is is the kind of stuff that we have uh, from, from the standpoint of, oh, there's mind and world. Actually, there's no world, there's just mind. That's not Yogacara. Yogacara is saying the kind of stuff, as you will see, the kind of stuff that this is made out of and the kind of stuff that this is made out of is the same kind of stuff. So when we say mind-world, mind both of those have to go away. Now, unfortunately, just the way the terminology works out, this is what ends up is being using very similar terms for what remains. Right? We're going to go through some of that. But it's important to not think of this as being subjective idealism, where we're saying the causes of my perceptions are just something inside my mind. That's not the way you want to think about this. And the question really is, if the causes of my perceptions are actually something out there, different than in here, then this duality is a kind of faithful representation of the situation. Okay? Why? Because even though I think this content is in, out, out there, and actually it isn't, nevertheless, this, the fact of this duality, the over-thereness, is, is a faithful way for my cognitive system to represent the fact that this stuff is a different kind of stuff than this stuff. So in that case, duality is not an error. But if they are the same kind of stuff, then that sense of, oh, there's a world out there and there's a mind in here is a mistake. I didn't get that. I'm sure you're not the only one. It's like perfect. Thanks, Siri. Perfect timing. Perf, perf, really perfect timing. Yeah, right. Uh, yes, yeah, she's listening. <laughs> yeah, right. So again, if the causes of our perceptions are like one kind of stuff, and the and the and this space that and the and the awareness space is another kind of stuff, then this duality is not false. Because yeah, what I'm actually seeing is in my mind. But it looks over there because that's a way of representing the fact that it is, out, that that stuff is out there, different from in here. Okay? So there's, yeah, go ahead. Or, yeah, exactly. Right. Or, well, but let's come back, we'll come back to that in one second. Let's, just think about how, remember in conceptualization, conceptualization has an error in it, which is that the error that all tables are the same, right? Which is, we're saying that's not the case, okay? So that's, that error is an error. We're able to still work with it. Our conceptual system can still work with it in a way that enables us to succeed. But the sameness, the patterns we see in the world or in our experience... Are, uh, are coming from our side. There are no real patterns or no real sameness in the world. We talked about that before, right? So, but in this case, just the sheer out there in here, if the stuff is different, then that would not be an error. 
Okay? If the stuff is not different, then that is an error. Okay? So, matter, so if we think about matter and energy, let's just go with matter for right now. If matter is something that part of what its definition is, is matter is not mind, which in our Western tradition, that's how this definition of matter emerges, then, you know, everyone blames Descartes, but, uh, but it really long precedes that. If that's the case, then if, then on the one hand, maybe there's matter and there's mind, or there's neither matter and there's neither mind as the opposite of matter. There's neither of those. There's something else, because they are defined in relation to each other. It is like a yes. So it's just a very. It's, it's kind of. It's not that fancy. It's really quite intuitive. It's like oh, there's mind stuff. Like there's my mental world, and then there's a world out there, and the world out there is made out of matter, and the world in here is not made out of matter. It's made out of something else, right? Like you know, my experience doesn't seem to be material. And then scientists will say, some scientists will say, oh, well, that's just a product of the way your brain works. Don't worry about it. Your experiences don't matter at all. Or, you know, conscious experience is a kind of result of uh, the way the, uh, is emergent from, you know, brain operations and so on. But all of those have already assumed that the account of the brain as a material entity is uh, just in place, Right, as opposed to saying, well, how do we know that the brain is material? How how do you know that there's matter? Uh huh. So you cut person open, you see the brain, and, and then how's that how's that being known? Yeah, within the field of consciousness. So, my colleague and friend Michel Bitbol has written quite extensively about this and is having some impact in the world of the philosophy of science, uh, B-I-T-B-O-L, Michel Bitbol. And, uh, you know, the upshot of it is that it's kind of naive to start from matter. What you have to start from is the observations that lead us to conclude that there's matter. Because that's what we actually have. So, which means that you have to start from consciousness, because that's where we're starting. That's not an argument for or against dualism or just reducing everything to matter, right? So one option, of course, is everything is just this. And one option is everything is just this. And, but as we're going to see in a moment, the Yogacara is saying neither of those is accurate. Everything is not just some kind of matter, and everything is not just some kind of mind, a mind that has been defined as the opposite of matter, Well, no, it's, it's, uh, it's better to say that these two, these are two are like, you know, light and dark. Light only makes sense in relation to, or long and short. Only makes sense in terms of its opposite. So this, so when we reduce in subjective idealism, when we reduce the world to mind, we're reducing the world to a conception, an idea of mind that is the opposite of matter. Or if we become materialists, we're reducing mind to a conception of matter that is the opposite of mind. Mm -hmm. 
And Yogacara is saying you, both of those are wrong. There's going to be a third option, which is both of them are the same kind of stuff. But if you conceive of that stuff as matter, which is the opposite of mind, you're wrong. And if you conceive it as mind, that's the opposite of matter, then you're also wrong. Okay? In other words, if you have a dualistic conception of that stuff, you're wrong. If the dualism is left in place, or is the basis for the claim about what kind of stuff is this and what kind of stuff is this, then you're in trouble. All right? Now, that does not mean like it's some kind of mystical, like, woo-woo, you know, I don't know what, like angels floating and, you know, whatever. But, it, but what it does mean is that the sense that I'm in here and the world is out there is just false. We are completely interpenetrated with the world. And the world is completely interpenetrated with us. And even the sense that that doesn't also mean that everything is one. Right? I mean, pretty obviously not the case that everything is one. It also doesn't mean that everything, however, is many. In the sense that they're discrete nodes. And this gets into the difficulty of relationality itself. So one metaphor you hear is the metaphor of Indra's net. Who's heard of Indra's net? Few people, okay? Uh, so, you know, Sudhana is going on a pilgrimage looking for his, uh, his teacher and Vasumitra, this uh, female bodhisattva, is leading him, helping him, and eventually they get to the palace of the king of the gods, Indra. And Indra's palace is, over Indra's palace is draped a big net, which is, in a sense, the whole universe. And then Vasumitra says, hey, go have, a look in the, in, go have a look in one of the jewels, like one of the elements, an individual, quote-unquote, in the universe, walks up, looks in the jewel, sees the whole net. But the jewel is still just one jewel. So this is obviously no longer like philosophically kind of respecting uh, con uh, contradiction, the law of non-contradiction, or the law of the excluded middle. Now we're beyond like, you know, we're not making sense. But that, the whole point is that to use the philosophy to the point where we recognize where it's falling apart. We use philosophy to the point of helping us to see it fall apart. And part of what that's telling us is we've reached the limit of dualistic conceptualizations. Because relationality itself is a kind of puzzle, a paradox that we've already discussed. Two things are in relation, they're different, but if they're entirely different, how do they relate? If they're the same, then they're not in relation, because a thing doesn't relate to itself, right? You need two-ness for relations. If they're entirely different, you know, if, if, uh, if, uh, if this is in relation to this, but it's not in relation to this, like, what's the rationale? And we then can talk about that, that there's, you know, some kind of a string between them. We already went through how we end up in an infinite regress. If they're the same, it's a problem. If it's different, if the relation is the same as the two things, it's a problem. And if it's different than the two things, it's a problem. So what that's telling us is that 
relationality itself exceeds our capaci- the capacity for language to capture it. That doesn't mean it's necessarily right, but it also doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong. Right? It just means that our current capacities, are, are the use of language, dualistic language, escapes, is escaped by relations, ultimately. Can there be another kind of language? We don't know, because our, our conceptual system is based entirely on trying to get good and bad, good things in the world and avoid bad things. Right? Can you use language to try to suggest things? Yes. But will it respect the basic structures of language, which are essentially our rationality? No, it won't. It'll violate those structures. So, coming back to this issue. The idea in, in Yogacara that we're about to examine is that our scent, the claim is going to be, I'm going to give you the conclusion before we run through it, the claim is going to be that this model is actually false. There isn't one kind of stuff out there and another kind of stuff in here. All right? Which means that this is also false. The subject-object structure in our experience is false, just like the remember, and it's one that we've not never learned because we couldn't learn. Because if there's the same kind of stuff, we've never had experience of some kind of stuff that's different than what experience is made out of. So just like the tendency to see patterns, to make oneness out of many, this would also have to be an innate, unlearned mistake. In other words, it's a form of ignorance. This is going to be Yogacara's baseline form of ignorance, that even that sense of out there in here is actually a distortion. It, it, you know, it works just like categorization mostly works, even though it's distorting. There are no, there's nothing identical about the tables. We can imagine that there's some abstract entity that makes them all the same, but we just have to imagine that. We don't, you know, the only reason we really, in the end, uh, um, you know, insist that that exists is that we have such a strong intuition that the oneness must be out there in the world and not made by our own conceptual system. Likewise, the sense that there's a world out there and a, and a, and a mind in here that's so strong that, that you know, we very much resist it. But the Yogacara is going to claim that this, this model, which maybe is, again, good for survival, is actually false. We're not, like, completely separated from the world inside... Not only is there no little person running the show or some controller or agent or something like that, the very idea that there's an inside and an outside is wrong. Yes, that's... Yes. No. It's not dual. It's not true duality. If this stuff, okay, uh, where was I? Okay, if this stuff and this stuff are different, then let's say you take a picture of, you know, like I don't know, you take a picture of the tanka, all right, 
and then you get the you get the picture and say, oh look, it's the it's uh, the tanka's got you know two strings hanging down, right? You say, oh well, the picture is not the strings, but it's a faithful representation of the strings. Like it's not a mistake. Let's say the picture gets some kind of error in it, and instead there's like a big white bar across it. Then you say, oh, that's not a good picture. I and mean, I can still kind of see the tanka, but there's an error here. This representation is not faithful to what that is. Okay? So there's a situation that suppose this is one kind of stuff, matter. This is another kind of stuff, mind. This is a representation of my moment of perception. Okay? If they're different kinds of stuff, then this, which is saying inside, outside is not a problem. It's like a good picture. If, if this is actually not a different kind of stuff, that these are all the same kind of stuff, then this is wrong. It's not, it's, it's telling us that we're separated from the, it's, it's telling, it's like the, it's like the bad picture with the bar across the, the white bar across the tanka. It is telling us, it's telling us that we are separated from the world, and the, there's a world, and there, there's like an inside and an outside in a way that is not the case. Okay? It's, a, it's not a good representation. However, for survival purposes, it's been working just fine. Sort of. Except that we suffer all the time. But we can evade predators, you know. And we can fight our, we can fight the other tribes and stuff like that. But uh, but we don't, we're not happy. Oh well. <laughs> yeah, right. Then you die. So is that is that clear? So that's where we're going with Yogacara. So that's why duality. So so far, this this model that we've gone through is completely cons- consistent with. The idea that this is a different kind of stuff. That's okay for this model, including reflexive awareness. But if we then say, which is what Dharmakirti does, if we then say this kind of, these are actually not different kind of stuff, then this structure in cognition is actually a mistake. It's a form of ignorance. It's an unlearned, innate form of ignorance. And it is causing us confusion. And the kind of fundamental confusion it's causing us is the idea that we're individuals kind of separated from the world in which we're embedded, which is false, according to this model. Okay? Alrighty then. So, is everyone okay? Are you doing all right? Kind of. There's the word swasamvitti. Yes. Yes. In real life, what that? What does that translate? Well, for one thing, it translates to like uh, I think that somehow I can be separate from the ecosystem in which I'm embedded, so I'm not part of nature, for example. And therefore, you know, what's happening in an ecosystem is in some sense not happening to me. And therefore I can like do things and, and uh, promote and develop technologies that, uh, uh, you know, destroy my ecosystem. But because I don't really, 
I falsely think of myself as somehow separate from the ecosystem and like a, the owner of it or a controller or whatever, but it's just not me. Therefore, you know, and it's like I'm not made of the ecosystem. Therefore, I like do all kinds of stupid things. And then eventually, you know, we have terrible climate disasters. So, yeah. So it's a very practical thing. More, more specifically, I become identified with, I think that I am an individual, sort of I should be making my own way on my own, uh, and then that gets intensified by a culture of hyper-individualism, and then when I run into trouble and I feel like I can't, I'm like, you know, I need help, I think I'm a loser. Because I don't see myself, experience myself as embedded in a whole network, in this case a social network. Because I think that's their, you know, they're diff- those are different bodies. They're over there. Right? And uh, I'm like enclosed, I'm like enclosed in my own little world. We're all, all, we're all enclosed in our own little worlds. That is false. We are not enclosed in our own little worlds. No, not. Now you wouldn't say your biology. Well, yes, you could say yes. You could say that an aspect of your bio, like, yeah, our 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 perceptual systems have evolved in a way that tells us we're separate from the world. Plus, cultural evolution, especially weird cultures, have evolved in a way that have that have told us that we're separate from the world and from each other in ways that we actually are not. So it, it yes. So uh, but yes, you could say you are biology in a way. And of course, biology is how. Is, what is biology? It's what happens when humans observe certain kinds of things using certain types of methods and then draw certain kinds of conclusions from it. Right. So biology isn't like a thing in the world. Biology is our way of understanding, for example, how these bodies work. Right. So it's not like it's an abstract entity, biology. Biology is a human cultural practice. Like every other science and every other thing that we know. So, uh, but, you know, given what we understand about our bodies, you can say, yes, we have, like, there are things about the way we've evolved that were great for survival, but are not great for, like, getting beyond that especially when we're very highly populated and it's easy for in-groups to interact with each other and cause conflict and so on and so forth, right? So, like, we need the next step of evolution, so to speak. So if people decide, if people decide that Trump won the election and then justify their overturning the, the affairs of government because of that belief, is that an example of that? Of what? Yeah, yeah, you could, you could perhaps say, I, I, I mean, I think in a, in a broad sense, you know, tribalism is, is in a broad sense a result of this kind of alienation. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and in-group, out-group conflict is a result of this kind of alienation. It's, an, it's, yeah, it's based on confusion. That would certainly be a way of interpreting this. This, this, this Yes? Yes. Oh, yeah. So, prakasha, that's the word for luminosity. Thank you. That's the word for luminosity? Prakasha. 
Okay, which also just means light. Okay, so we're gonna. I'm gonna say a few things. We'll take a break, and then we're gonna like do yoga chara. So uh, the, the, we talked about the first turning, the noble truths. The second turning, the perfection of wisdom. Then we did stuff around Dharmakirti's cognitive model. Technically, that arises a little after Yogacara starts, but as you will see, Dharmakirti is also Dharmakirti and his followers are also Yogacara philosophers. They're both. So Dharmakirti deliberately made a system that was compatible with the belief that there is matter out there, and then he uses that to get people to get rid of that belief, right? Or mostly his followers do that. Uh, and the third turning, then, is the one in which we have yoga chara, the third turning of the wheel. Which, and this is also the one in which we talk about Buddha nature. Okay? So, and there's a, there's a reason for that. Those are related to each other. Well, in terms of the schools, remember, this is the order, like, from, you know, gross, so to speak, to subtle. But the historical progression... And we've just treated these pretty much together. Historical progression is actually this. And I could have put a number four here as well because we're going to come back to this at the end. Okay? So there's, right, we're going to, Yogacara is after Madhyamaka, but then there's going to be a revised version of Madhyamaka that Maria, uh, Maria has to go to a, a job thing right now, a Zoom, I think, or something. So we're going to take a break in two minutes. You won't miss anything super important here. So, actually, let's stop there. And then, because this, this is a good verse. So, uh, uh, we'll pick it up from here. Want to come back at 3 o'clock in eight minutes? Yeah, sure. All right. Pause it now. Pause it or stop it? Either one. Maybe stop it, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.